Bear quickly. I just uh, want to lead you in a prayer on the occasion of Mother's Day, but before that I want to mention um, Tierney has asked that uh, we announce, I think it might have been because of the uh, events of last week, uh, Tierney has decided to get baptized. <laughs> and so that's going to be happening at camp. So for those of us who are down there, it'll be great to share that with her. Um, and for those who are not, we'll, we'll take a, a video of it and play it here at church as well because it, it's really an active community. Uh, Tierney is with her mom today at uh, her mother's church. So what I want to do is lead you just for a moment or two in this prayer. I'm going to list how we pray, uh, how we might pray on Mother's Day, and, uh, and then we'll leave a moment of quiet uh, before we turn to the sermon. Let's pray together. On this day, let us give thanks for the gift of motherhood, and let us give thanks for our own mothers, those living and those who have passed on. Let us pray for the mothers who loved us well and for those who fell short. Let us pray for all who hope to be mothers one day and for those whose hopes for biological motherhood have been frustrated. Let us pray for those mothers who have lost their children and for those who must daily face the imminent prospect of losing them. Let us pray for all those in our lives who have been our mothers in whatever way and who have trained us up in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'll leave a moment of quiet for you to pray on your own before I close. Dear Heavenly Father, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask your blessing, and we pray now for the hearing of your word, Holy Spirit, that by your presence and power uh, you may speak to us and that Christ would be exalted in our midst. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we conclude. Uh, We may take this series up again sometime and do um, some more detailed look at actual arguments in the New Testament, um, particularly the New Testament for our consideration. But for now, we conclude this six-week series that we've called How to Argue Christianly. And I want to start with a fight. It's kind of a fight, but it's not that bad, that I heard about this week, and it just made me smile, which isn't necessarily a good thing, but that's what happened. Uh, This pertains to my friend Scott Wheeler, who comes here sometimes, and many of you know Scott and Barb and their family. And uh, I had coffee with Scott this week, and he shared this story with me. And then as he left, he said, do not put that in a sermon. So I am. No. uh, (laughs) uh, So I texted him sometime later, and I said, this is going in the sermon. And I took it as a sealed deal when he said 20 bucks, and I said, deal. So I hope it's worth it. This is a picture. uh, Oh, here, before, I want to, what we're going to talk about today is how arguments end. What's the end of argument? So whenever you hear the word end and you're thinking Christianly, end doesn't mean just the, you know, the mark that something ceases. It means the completion, the fulfillment. It's a, it's a bigger word in Christian faith than in many other uh, aspects. How do arguments end should mean something different, even the question itself for Christians. How do fights end? How does anything end? And how does everything end? 
And so this provided a good illustration of that, at least in my mind. This is Scott Wheeler's father. Now, Scott Wheeler's father is in many ways unlike Scott. This particular argument has as its context the debate over the uh, pipeline that is going to be built or not going to be built that there's a lot of discussion and argument about in our country and particularly our province. This is Scott Wheeler's dad living on Vancouver Island where I guess John Horgan's constituency office is. And this is him in front of John Horgan's office and the sign that he's holding. And it's okay that I'm showing his picture doing this because if you go and you stand in public holding a sign, you want people to know about it. That's the point. So if you feel like he shouldn't be doing this, no. That's the whole point of holding signs in public places. And he says, help build the pipeline or get out of the way. Now, I heard Scott's conversation about this. He said, what happened was, uh, after this, I posted something online, I suppose Facebook, and, uh, and I just said, props to my dad for standing up what he, for what he believes in or something like that, right? Props to my dad, but he is an oil man from Alberta, and him and I see things differently. That was it. Well, as social media goes, this started a little bit of a fight. Not only with these two, like father and son to some degree, but with all other kinds of people who chimed in about how stupid the other side was. Scott then, if you know Scott, I think this is beautiful, with the help, well, no, I won't tell you, Scott then did this. This is Scott in front of John Horgan's constituency office with John Horgan leaning against the window and Scott's sign says, the guy in the yellow jacket last week was my dad. Sorry about that. No pipeline. <laughs> it's, it's just beautiful, isn't it? Father and son on Mother's Day. <laughs> now, uh, curiously, this photo is not real. Uh, and we have a family. David Boyle made this photo <laughs> and then posted it. So people thought it was real, and then the conversation continued from there. My question is, how does this fight end? How does the pipeline argument end? Well, it gets built or not built, I suppose. How does a small argument even in a family end, or does it just build? Beyond that more, how, do, how does anything end and in Christian faith, and this actually is the guiding question for us this morning, even though we're talking about how fights end, the, the, the thing that ought to guide our idea of how fights end or arguments end is the question, how does everything end? And Christian faith has a very different answer for how everything ends than just about everything else. These questions are related because properly understood, Christian faith has tremendous impact uh, on how these questions are answered. And of course, you could say tritely that the answer to how everything ends is Jesus Christ. But this is not trite Sunday school, but rather thoughtful, theological, philosophical, and meaningful. How does everything end? How does the universe end? Well, what most astrophysicists or cosmologists will say, that at some point the universe, which is still expanding, will expand to the point that it can't expand anymore, or that, ex that will slow down, and the universe will cease to exist. That's one argument. It stops. It's over. How do you end? It takes great maturity. And I don't know how many people develop this. I'm, I, I look for them in my life. I can't count myself among them yet. I've found some, I think. 
how do you end? But people who have the maturity to know that when they end, that is not the end. There's tremendous freedom in that. I used to think this when, as a young Christian, I came across a number of older Christians who were terribly fascinated by end times. And I noticed in my observation that many of those people were getting quite a bit older. And I didn't know at the time, but then the more I kind of lived and worshipped with these people, I thought, oh, at least one element of this is a staving off of death. The Lord will return in our lifetime. Because otherwise you have to face your end, knowing that that is not the end. In Christian faith, the claim is always, and it's by the word, the the word for it theologically is eschatology. That word means how things end. And in Christian faith, the end is eternal, reconciled life in God. The end of life is life in Jesus Christ. I tell you this because this is the basis of Christian hope. The basis of Christian hope is not your individual salvation. Church is not about managing the savedness of the saved. Salvation ought always to make you think of something bigger than your personal relationship. not saying it's not a personal relationship, but there's something going on that is much, much bigger than you or I. And this is our hope. That God is reconciling the world. Christian hope, not only on the universal level, will impact things, but right down to the levels of fights and arguments and how to argue Christianly. There is a word that I have in my mind and was in our scripture reading for this morning that would answer the question, what does Jesus do? Remember those little bracelets, WWJD? I mean, it was difficult because the assumption that you would always know what Jesus would do is, if you read the Gospels, he did things all the time that people would never have picked. What would Jesus do? But there is one word for what Jesus does. You could say, is that word that he judges? Well, he is the judge in the final, in the end, in the final judgment. But that word will never be understood on its own. Don't ever seek to understand the word judgment in Christian faith without the word love. The judgment of God is entirely contained within God's love. If not, we would not have the cross. So judgment is not an adequate word to summarize what Jesus does. How about loves? Well, that's better. It's big. It's expansive. And we could accept it. Jesus loves us and the Father. But to describe that love a little bit more is to give the word that we have in our answer, and that is that Jesus reconciles. He reconciles. Jill read it for us this morning, Colossians 1. How does the universe end? How does the world end? Well, every, just about every definition on offer is that it burns or it ceases. You could have doomsday scenarios on the left or doomsday scenarios on the right. On the left, they tend to be ecological. On the right, they tend to be moral. But things will fall apart and cease. And the Christian response to that, this is sometimes where the emphasis on individual salvation comes from, which is good and helpful, but it's not enough 
So because everything is going down like this, do you, do you have this conception as a Christian or a young Christian? I did. Because everything is like this, you turn to God so you can avoid that decline, even to the point of judgment. It's not really a Christian understanding, actually, but it does make sense in its context. The Christian response to how does the world end, and this is, might be difficult for you, but I'm okay with that. The Christian response to how does the world end is that in Jesus Christ, all things are made new. That's it. Last week, the woman at the well, after she was told about Jesus, and Jesus told her about her life, which we remarked is often understood in teaching as Jesus like called her out on her sin, but that just doesn't, the text doesn't support that that's what was happening. He, he identified with her longing and talked about living water. And one of the reasons that the evidence is that he's not calling out on her sin is that she doesn't repent. She doesn't say, oh, no, oh, no. She, in turn, she says, you're a prophet. In other words, you see something about me, and he's, he, she knows that he is for her, not against her. And she goes and tells people, come and see this one who's told me everything about me or everything I've done. And then they say, we have seen ourselves now, and we know that this is indeed the Savior. And the word Savior in the New Testament, interchangeable for it in almost every case, is the word healer, which is another word for reconciler. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So these verses. 1 John 4 14, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior or Reconciler of the world. John 4, 42, we have seen ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior, the Healer. Romans 5, 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, Adam and Eve sin. As one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act, in fact the language earlier says, how much more then? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. You need to wrestle with these verses. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Romans 11.32 It's a conversation about the end of unbelief, like God will bring unbelief to an end. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. And John 12, 32, Jesus Christ uh, hearkening back to the journey in the desert when a snake was lifted up for healing. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up for the earth, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It's unfortunate that it is often necessary after reading through verses like this to mention that I don't see this as universalism. I don't see this as, well, it doesn't matter what you think and everybody's in. I see this as describing God's expansive, encompassing love. The reason that you worry about is this universalism is that you're underneath this uh, umbrella of who's in and who's out. And so right away you hear things like this and try, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, this is the word of the Lord. In Jesus Christ, God has reconciled and is reconciling and will reconcile the world to himself. In Jesus Christ, God reconciles the world to himself. Four tenses there that make it complete. In Jesus Christ, God reconciles himself to the world. 
So in arguing and in fights, it is remarkable, isn't it, when you think of Reverend Brian King. As a minister, I think, how did he last in that parish for 18 years? It's remarkable that these things actually happened. And some of you can look to your own recent contemporary past and think, well, it wasn't that bad, but I can remember and think of people who seemed to follow in that tradition. They didn't light furniture on fire, but they might have. It's remarkable that these things happen, and it's another reminder that there are no good old days. The churches were more full then. Was that much better? Did people trust in God so much more? I don't know. These fights that we have been hearing about this morning, what does reconciliation in Jesus Christ have to do with them? I would think that one of the most powerful moments in our service this morning thus far has been that Anne finishes reading that story and then Jim leads us in a song that says, Lord, you have my heart. Right after that. And the Holy Spirit speaks. So what does Jesus Christ have to do with our fights today? And what does this reconciling work have to do with our fights We have argued that faith in Jesus Christ and in this reconciling work ought to change how we argue in our families, in our churches, and in our society outside the faith. The nature of this reconciliation, the expansive nature of the all, and I pointed it out just a moment ago, the expansive nature, Jesus Christ reconciles all things. And the, and the text that was read for us kind of seems to say, because good you know, evangelical Christians want to go, well, not all things, because you know, most people aren't. And so it's almost like uh, Paul anticipates that argument. He reconciles all things, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, right? Like, don't try to limit this all. But the all, again, is not a declaration of who's in and who's out. The all is talking about God's expansive love. And if that word all becomes itself an occasion for arguments, well, we have demonstrated our misunderstanding. What it does mean is that we are not dismissive in this world or arrogant or afraid. We don't have a negative and dark engine to our faith. We have hope and light in Jesus Christ. Now, in the church and in every other part of society, fear is often a stronger motivator than hope or than love. And you will find in your life, in the church and outside the church, people who are very willing to marshal the fears of the community or the people to their own ends. Think about anything. Think about civic government. Think about pipeline discussions. Think about church. Think about family. People will marshal the fears that they see are present. Some will. And use them in order to try to get an outcome. W.E. Dubois, writing in a work called Black Reconstruction in America in 1935. So this was a period after uh, rebuilding, after the Civil War in the United States, which was largely fought over slavery. Uh, But then afterwards, there was a long period of lynching where African-American people could be lynched simply for, well, nothing or anything. Or you looked at that woman, and so this person was killed or something. W.E. Dubois is writing about that time and says the following. So he pictures a crowd of people screaming for someone's death. He says, back of the writhing, yelling, cool-eyed demons who break, destroy, maim, and lynch, 
and burn at the stake is a knot, large or small, of normal human beings. And those human beings are at heart desperately afraid of something. Of what? Of many things. But usually of losing their jobs, of being declassed or degraded or actually disgraced, of losing their hopes and their savings, their plans for their children. Christian faith ought to call us to something higher. A troubling thing for me, someone who enjoys to read history, is the realization that many people in those screaming crowds would have declared faith in Jesus Christ. We note that the political facsimiles of Christian faith have existed and still do exist. Any facsimile that is tribal or patriotic, patriotic isn't a great word all the time, by the way, nationalistic, tribal, patriotic, fearful, or hateful. So to give one account, you can tell that I just read a book on American history this week. This is the final illustration from that book that you'll hear this morning at least. Strom Thurmond, who died not too long ago uh, in 1948 at a university, University of Virginia, Virginia, a political rally. He was running for president. Thursday, October 7th, 1948. And he was presenting an argument that segregation, the division of white people and black people, should not end. That segregation was a must even that segregation was supported by Christian scripture. He was a candidate, as I say, for president of the United States, and he addressed a crowd of 1,000 people inside the University of Virginia's Cabell Hall in, interestingly enough, Charlottesville. The subject at hand was President Harry S. Truman's civil rights legislation that included anti-lynching laws and protections against racial discrimination in hiring. Thurman argued that such measures would undermine the American way of life and outrage the Bill of Rights. Interrupted repeatedly repeatedly by applause and standing ovation, he said the following, I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there is not enough troops in the army to force the southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, and into our churches. The fear was that civil rights was a communist plot, or at least this is what Thurman said, against the United States. And this was to him and others a matter of patriotism and also a matter of faith. The base of that way of thinking is fear. Fear distorts Christian faith to the point that we have had generations of people who have walked away from the church and sometimes, even as a pastor, this is a terrible confession, I think that might not have been the worst thing they could have done. If they have been presented with a faith that is distorted by fear, even, this is the most difficult one, well-meaning fear, the fear that we can have for our kids. Fear ought not to be the motivation. How do things end? How does anything end? How do you end an argument? By winning? By defeating the other person, usually by force or strength or intellect. Some of you get really frustrated that there are people in your lives who can talk really well and keep calm, and you just hate that so much because they do it and they seem to do it to win. How do things end? Christian faith declares that things end with reconciliation, hope 
That is why we have hope because of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And as Grady Bueller, we were talking this morning, and so I should credit him with this. He said strongly in my office we were praying before, he said, if Christians don't have hope, then who will? But if we present a church that looks at this world and keeps going, oh no, oh no, oh no. Colossians chapter 2, following on what Jill read for us this, this morning. Some of you would know this, these verses. These verses say that Jesus Christ disarmed the powers of this world and this earth. It doesn't deny the reality of evil and opposition. But it does say that Jesus Christ has disarmed those powers, making a spectacle of them, triumphing over them, and then tells you how. How? Triumphing over them by strength? By an army? By power? By a sword or a gun or the powers of a mighty God? Listen to the text. Triumphing over them by the cross. You have never seen anything like this. Very few churches, very few gatherings of people, even faithful people, were so drawn to power, earthly, influence. Jesus Christ has triumphed over these negative powers by the cross. Do you see it? He took our sin, our division, our desire to be judge ourselves, and He has taken the place of us the place of division. At the end of history is God with His people by the power of Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection. Jesus Christ has reversed the course of the world, the world that was heading to nothing and to its end, to emptiness or to chaos, back to chaos. He has reversed the course back to chaos and brought us reconciliation The first dimension of this reconciliation is that God has reconciled himself to us and us to himself in Jesus Christ. This is your Christian hope. This is why you should care that your friends might be interested in the fact that you're a Christian. Because you have such hope that God in Jesus Christ has reconciled himself to us. Jesus Christ exists with us in our fallen and perishing state. That is where things are headed without Him. He exists with us in our fallen and perishing state, but He redeems and reverses the course of the world. And somehow, and this is mystical and spiritual, somehow this ought to influence every argument I have. Division is undone. Sin itself is undone. Separation is undone. Reconciliation in Christ means that we are not abandoned, that God has not abandoned us. But there's a second dimension to this reconciliation. And it acts at times in Christian Scripture, as you know, and in the words of our Lord, as evidence of the first kind of reconciliation. Firstly, God brings Himself together with humanity in Jesus Christ. But secondly, God brings together humanity with humanity. In other words, because of the work of Jesus Christ, people are reconciled with one another. And if churches are demonstrating anything other than that, then we are far from the right use of the word Christian.
God brings together humanity with humanity. It's not your job to figure out who's in, who's out, who's saved, who's not saved. But when you think of your non-Christian friend, think of this. God brings together humanity with humanity. This is the hope of Jesus Christ. Paul stresses this in Galatians. Where are the divisions then that you see that you uh, rule your life according to? All these divisions that so often the Christian church has sought to propagate and continue as important to the faith in some kind of way of we can't let go of these things because they're so meaningful. What are those divisions? Are they gender or status or religion? In Jesus Christ, we're told in Galatians, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. This isn't just a description of the life of the community. This is a description of reconciliation. That these divisions in true reconciliation cease to have any of their meaning. The love of Christ brings God and people together and brings people and people together Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus Christ adds and completes and love your neighbor as yourself. What I'd like you to do, I as pastor in this place, which is always amusing to me, but enjoyable most of the time. And I don't ask you that many things as pastor. I don't think that I, uh, you know, people, that kind of thing. I think it in my head all the time. I'm terribly disappointed in you most of the time. I'm kidding, by the way. But I do have an ask now because our world needs it and the church needs it. The depth of church and religion is so often understood by prohibition. Things that we ought not to do. And we have at times allowed our witness in the world to be defined by these things. What are the prohibitions? We have misunderstood concepts of salt and light in this way and many other scriptural things. We think that Christian faith sometimes and many other people outside the faith can think that Christian faith is defined by the word don't, by prohibition. It is no wonder then that the world is not interested. Would you be interested in such a thing? My faith is real In Jesus Christ, it's the thing that is most important to me in my life. Of course, there are 10 million dumb things that I can do and wrong things that I can do. And I ought not to do those things. And I repent. But my faith is not defined by prohibition. My faith is defined by life and reconciliation. My ask is that you move in this growth of faith. That when you feel so compelled to disappointment with the world or with people in your own family, that you give this some space. And when you feel you're caught up in one of these arguments, that you say, Holy Spirit, would you open my eyes again to what it means that all is reconciled in Jesus Christ my Lord. Our capacity to hurt one another is remarkable. I'm not denying the reality of sin and evil, but Christian faith is compelled not by prohibition and division, but by becoming each day more and more aware of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. One of the first marks of Christian maturity is that you are able to step outside, even of your own spiritual formation, 
your own spiritual disciplines, your own, you know, devotion, read the Bible, pray, do these important things. One of the first, well, actually it's down the road a little bit, but it's one of the most important marks of Christian maturity is that you realize that's not the end of definition of faith. This faith is bigger than you and your faith. You can be doing terribly as a Christian and God's project of reconciliation is not thwarted. Each day, though, the hope that you become more and more aware of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. The command to realize this is in all aspects of life. He has made atonement. All things are reconciled in him. All things are reconciled in him. You know, we used to have, told you this before, many of you know, in the old building, and, and when I was youth pastor, we broke these styrofoam letters 2,000 times. We had in styrofoam letters that looked like granite, but they were styrofoam, I know, because I broke them. And it said, and it was from this Colossians text, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That is from the same text that says, all things will be reconciled in him. Maybe our next styrofoam letters say that. Building on the faith of those who have come before. Christian faith always truly understood moves forward forward. And if your engine of Christian faith is thinking about yesterday, as much as I love you and as much as I can understand nostalgia, and it's not to criticize and say things were wrong then. It's not that at all. But the engine of Christian faith and the hope of the world in Christian faith is that this faith moves forward. All things are reconciled in him. Let's go with that. And if someone says, that's pretty dangerous, then we can have a conversation maybe about Jesus. So, the life that is in this. I disagree with someone, or if I'm having an argument, and you guys know me, I like arguing. And I really like winning. Arguments especially. Until about two hours later when I feel the worst. And I think part of that is that I realize in my faith that this is not the end of things, even this day, even this context, but that in Jesus Christ I am set free, and if you've been set free in Jesus Christ, you are free indeed. So, therefore, this is Second Corinthians before this text, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, hear this now, some of you remember these words, The new creation has come, making all things new, even you. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, now here's what we're sent to do, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that if anybody that you know thinks the world is headed nowhere, you can simply say, that's not what I believe in my Christian faith. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then to end where we began. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Thanks be to God. We're going to turn to communion. I'll pray for you and in prayer also direct you of how to receive. After communion, we'll take the offering as well, so I will pray for the offering. We always say we see this as a table of inclusion, not exclusion. So if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to, you're welcome to receive. But you don't have to. You can let the the bread and the cup pass by, and there are no second-class citizens here. Another reason to let the bread or the cup pass by is if you have a particular argument, uh, ongoing difficulty with someone else that you know you need to do something to try to make right. It's not always possible, but you might be convicted in that way by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, even for Christian people, it's good to let the communion pass by and go make things right with your brother or sister first and then come receive communion next time we gather for such. We issue the invitation, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as the reconciler of all things, if you have not recognized this reconciliation that he has for you, then we offer that invitation and you simply pray. I mean, really, all you need to pray is come, Lord Jesus. Open my eyes and let me see. And let me see the new creation that you make me to be. Let's pray. The night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. You and the world. All the world. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the wine, and We see this as the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is my blood poured out for you. We say to one another, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sin. The bread and the cup are the declaration that in Jesus Christ all things are reconciled. Put your faith in this. Put your trust in this. You could become a Christian by just receiving the bread and the cup if you so engage in that way saying yes to Jesus Christ. So Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless the bread and the cup as we receive it. Holy Spirit, that by your presence you speak to us in this simple ritual, that we could see by your power and presence what this means, and that we could uh, truly receive. We thank you for your word, but mostly, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for what you have done for us, for this world. In your name we pray. Amen.